It's almost universal. Whether it's two wheels, four wheels, 18 wheels, no wheels. So many of us have a special memory involving a vehicle or a story about a car we've loved. Even if you can't tell a crankshaft from a drive shaft, I want to hear the story of the vehicle that moved you. I'm Blake Jackson, and this is Autobiography. Next guest on the Autobiography Podcast, we're joined by Jason Harris from the Reynolds Alberta Museum. Now, over the last little while, we have been working with the Reynolds Alberta Museum because, yeah, they've got cars, but they realize that every vehicle out there has a story behind it. And, and that's what we uh, aim to bring to you as well. So welcoming Jason Harris. Tell us about the vehicle that moved you. We have a Bricklin here, and I guess the story for it for me is uh, it kind of started my whole love of cars. Let's talk about the Bricklin SV1. Malcolm Bricklin wanted an affordable car with gullwing doors. Don't we all? He also wanted one that was very safe. In fact, SV1 stands for Safety Vehicle 1. So in 1974, production began in St. John, New Brunswick. Safety features included lack of an ashtray. He figured if you're smoking, you're not paying attention to the road. Polyurethane safety bumpers and high visibility paint. Malcolm Bricklin figured if they can see you, they're not going to hit you. Um, so they, they actually had safety white. They had safety red. Safety Green, uh, you could order it in Safety Orange, and they also had a, a color called Safety Suntan, which was really just a, a, a high visibility brown. Um, fun fact, they actually wrote a musical about the Bricklin that made such a big smash in New Brunswick culture. Um, one notable model that came out was the chairman. Now, he wanted to sell more and really get more funding, so he made an upscale, more exclusive model which was all class. The chairman featured a larger engine, cool. It was black with gold stripes. It came with a golden toolkit and it came with a gold jumpsuit. Like the Bricklin, I'm originally from New Brunswick. And I remember as a really small kid uh, around the time, 1975, 76 or so, the Canada Day parades uh, in my hometown, uh, were led by Bricklins with the gullwing doors aloft, and they had dignitaries uh, in, in the vehicles. Uh, the dignitaries didn't mean a whole lot to me. It was more the cars. I saw this, and I just I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The, I mean, they weren't great cars, and I didn't know that till later. <laughs> but uh, just that look, the 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 sleek design, that kind of a you know sports car look and then the gullwing doors was something uh, I had never seen before and I don't have a lot of memories from back when I was four or five years old but those really stand out to me and that that's what kind of got me started in the love of cars and, and started me down that path um, I'm I'm both I'm red sealed in in both uh, as a mechanic and as an auto body technician and uh, I if I was a little younger, I'd probably go for more. That car is what got me started. Not a lot of people have heard of the Bricklin, and it's myself included. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know 
too much about it. A Canadian vehicle. Can you tell us a bit of the story? It was a company started by Malcolm Brickland, who actually got his first start. He franchised his parents' hardware store. He was from the U.S., of course. He made some money doing that. Then he started Subaru of America, actually. Along the line, decided he wanted to make his own car. Had some money of his own. Uh, but needed to be subsidized a bit. And at the time, the unemployment rate uh, in New Brunswick was quite high. He reached out uh, to the New Brunswick government at the time, wondering if they would want to help support him. He would move his factory uh, to New Brunswick, create a lot of jobs, and was going to build this car there. Uh, you know, New Brunswick's not very well known as, a, as an automotive epicenter, not like Oshawa, Ontario, or Detroit, but... You know, just to create the jobs, the government agreed and basically helped to fund this project. Most models are known as uh, 1974 or 75. There were a few 1976s. But basically, um, the car, there had a lot of bugs with the car. Uh, the electric over hydraulic uh, actuators that worked the doors were faulty. Uh, the fit and finish on the bodies weren't good. And it was actually an all-new technology. They were using acrylic plastics that were adhered to uh, fiberglass to make the panels and the and the acrylic was actually injected with color so the cars didn't have paint the what you saw was the actual color of the plastic so there wasn't a lot of colors available but that's that's how they were built it was kind of a a neat technology at the time but like with most things getting them off the ground uh, they had a lot of troubles delaminating of, of these acrylic panels. Production costs went through the roof. Uh, and the end of it, I've, I've watched some programs on it. They actually interviewed Malcolm Bricklin, and he said, you know, he went for more money. The government had won a landslide election and a majority, and basically the premier of the province said, I don't need you anymore. You're not getting any more of our money. And the, country, uh, the company went into receivership after that. Funny to note that a receiver company in Canada got the rights to everything and then sold it to a gentleman in Columbus, Ohio. And he got all the parts. He got some cars that were left on the assembly line that weren't finished. And he did finish some of them and put some together from parts. And they, those were sold to 76s. Out here in Western Canada, we rarely, rarely see these cars. How many of them were made? Uh, there were not a lot. Some of the engineers and designers that worked on the Bricklin actually went to work for John DeLorean. If you look at a Bricklin, it looks very similar to a DeLorean and... Most people know a DeLorean because of Back to the Future. So you've talked about the fit and the finish not always being the best and various issues. Was there anything about this car that was good, that was desirable? I think just the look. It does have a, a quite a large cult following. The problem with another problem with the car was uh, the estimated production cost because of production issues. They were actually selling the car for double what they estimated they were going to sell it at. It, the price they were asking for it was actually less than what it cost to build them. Did people buy these? There were. Uh, people bought them. Uh, there were some. I, I remember seeing later on after production stopped when I was a bit older, there is still some uh, in New Brunswick. Uh, I believe the one that we have in the collection here uh, at the museum, it came from Stan, but I believe he picked it up back there uh, in New Brunswick. Uh, is where he ended up getting it from. I mean, it's it's a it is a failure in a way, uh, but I mean, it is still a, it, it's a truly it's a, it's a Canadian story. This car had two years to really prove itself, which in the lifespan of most 
manufacturers is is nothing. So you think maybe if given time, it could have turned into a, a really a cool car, a desirable car. But I guess we'll we'll never know. Well, and and that, and I agree one hundred percent. You know, any car like when Henry Ford uh, came out with the Model T. I mean, he first, at very first, started with Ford Motor Company. They went through the the alphabet until they got to a T. And then he said, well, this is a good enough car. Uh, but we, we have a, a Model N here in our collection, which is well before the T. If, you know, if after two years of trying, didn't have a perfect car or something he could, you know, sell and, and, and had everything, production and supplies all streamlined, and he had given up on it, there may not be Ford Motor Company today. The Bricklin in the collection, which I understand is at the Royal Alberta Museum currently? Yes, it is. The, the We have it on loan to the Royal Alberta Museum. It's a 1975. Have you had a chance to drive this one? I actually have. I've actually, it, it had a, an engine issue uh, that I had to repair on it and I had to remove one of the cylinder heads to get it uh, repaired. But I've, I've worked on it uh, extensively and uh, I have driven it. it. It doesn't drive all that bad. It's, it's, feels a bit underpowered for what you would think for a sports car but you know, and and we haven't been able to get the uh, bugs out of the power doors that open so we kind of open them manually they're a little bit heavy mm-hmm. uh, but another thing with this particular car too and I mean it was called their, their model name was the SV1 which stood for safety vehicle one and it had a, a monocoque chassis like an aircraft. So underneath all the plastic bits all over the car was this very rigid metal structure, uh, making the car very, very safe. It had, uh, you know, impact absorbing bumpers on the front and the rear. Uh, it, it was, there was some things about it that uh, made it a bit ahead of its time uh, that other manufacturers weren't necessarily doing at that particular time. But it was unfortunate. They just couldn't seem to get the bugs out of it. But every time I see it, it, it just brings back those memories mm-hmm. of you know when i was four or five years old seeing these things well that's so uh, cool in that... parades and you know now i'm here and i get to i mean and honestly the the bricklin when i tell people it's like the newest car i get to work on here and it's a 1975 so i know that uh the collection really isn't about speed and the quarter mile anything like that what do you think the fastest vehicle in the collection is we do have a top fuel dragster, so I'd kind of have to go okay. with that. But as far as a, a, a road-worthy, street-driven car, we have a 1970 Boss Mustang 302. Nice. And I would have to say, and it's it's a real boss. It's it's got the the, the race-inspired 302, not just your average 302 cubic inch Ford engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the previous owner actually put a, a five-speed transmission in it, one with an overdrive. Oh. Um, so I would say that would probably be the fastest one that we would have here. That's one of the the biggest perks is you get to drive them. And lots of times when I'm taking them out for a test drive or just I've done some repairs and I want to verify that the repairs are correct and everything is working properly um, and you're cruising down the street or towards the highway here from the museum uh, and you kind of look at the inside of the vehicle and you, you, you say to yourself, who in the heck else gets to do this for a living? Jason Harris from the Reynolds Alberta Museum. I've said it once, I'll say it again, because it's the truth. Take everyone you know and, and get them out to the Reynolds Alberta Museum. They have cars, but they have even more stories, Canadian stories, Alberta stories. And um, 
great family destination. I'll keep saying that because I, I really do mean it. I'm Blake Jackson. Thank you for joining us for the Autobiography Podcast. And if you have a story about the vehicle that moved you, I want to hear it. Come and be on the show. I would love that. All right, time for another. Next guest on the Autobiography Podcast, a founder and minister of the Church of Better Days, which coincidentally is also the title of his album, singer, songwriter, and best mustache out of Winnipeg since Burton Cummings. Please welcome Boy Golden. Paul, thanks for having me. I, I, uh, I'll take the best, uh, best stash out of Winnipeg since Burton Cummings compliment. I'll take that. Hey, it's heartfelt. Nice. It's heartfelt. <laughs> Tell us about the vehicle that moved you. Okay, so I have a van. It's very near and dear to my heart. It is a 1995 Toyota Previa. All right, going to stop and tell you about the 1995 Toyota Previa. Introduced in 1990 and built through 2019 and three different body generations, Previa is derived from the Italian word for preview, as Toyota figured the Previa would be the ideal platform for new technology in future minivans. Called the Estima in Japan and the Tarago in Australia, Boy Golden's favorite van was at one point available with a turboed engine and a five-speed manual transmission. Through the years, the Previa was celebrated for its reliability, and once you start looking, you see that people really do love these vans. I, I found one guy uh, who had turned his Toyota Previa into a convertible, and there was one notable sociopath who actually took his Previa and made it into an El Camino. Um, I bought it four or five years ago for $1,000 off this older fella named George. He was, I was up in Onano, Manitoba doing some work with my grandpa, and George, he's a neighbor, stops by to say hello, and I'm like, George, sweet van. And he says to me, well, it's for sale. I've had this van since 1995, and I kind of want to get a Toyota RAV4. And I was like, well, that sounds like a great idea. How much are you selling it for? And he's like, I don't know. Like, make me an offer. And I said, well, it's got 280,000 clicks on it, so how about 1,800 bucks? And he was like, oh, that's way too much money. How about $1,000? <laughs> and I was like, okay, sounds great. <clears throat> and he safety it for me, got the brakes all fixed. And I've been driving it ever since. And remarkably, it's taken me to Toronto back and back probably three times, Vancouver and back a couple times on tour. I've driven it to On and On back, which is like a three-hour drive from Winnipeg, countless times. I just love it so much. It plays cassettes. That's the vibe in there. So I have hundreds and hundreds of cassettes uh, <laughs> because <laughs> my dad used to DJ. It's just a great vibe. I love it very much. It's like I'm very, I'm very attached to it. It's it kind of immediately became sort of part of my personality and my my personal brand, if you will. Is that the same van that's in your videos? It is. Yeah, I've used it a lot in like all of my stuff because I just think it's a cool, hilarious-looking van, and it just suits me really well. And it's actually currently in the shop. I'm uh, going to pick it up right after we finish this conversation because I had to get the exhaust converter fixed because it was doing some pretty whack stuff where the exhaust was just pouring out through every uh, orifice that it has. It's a pretty weird engine. Uh, there, I don't know if you've seen a picture, but the, it, the front of it just slopes straight down off the windshield. It's mm -hmm. kind of odd <clears throat> because it's a mid-engine. So the engine's actually underneath the car. And um, that's like 
kind of interesting, but it's not really a great design, especially in the winter. It's also a rear-wheel drive, so that's not really ideal for Manitoba conditions. But uh, still, it's really fun. I do kind of have a fun story, actually, about one time we were going on tour, and I left my car with, um, you know, an oil change place and went to do something else and then came back and picked it up. I'm like, all right, we changed your oil. And I'm, I was like, okay, cool, thank you. And I didn't really check anything about it. But I kind of felt like something was a little off on my drive to Calgary. So I took it to, my friend has this place in Calgary. They do, they just do Toyotas. So they look, they looked in there and uh, these guys did not understand that you have to fill the oil from underneath the driver's seat. You actually have to tilt the driver's seat back. And that's where you fill the oil from because the engine's underneath the car. And all they did was replace the, there's like a kind of an oil reservoir in the front part of the car which is not where the engine is that only has two liters of oil in it so the whole van on that whole trip was running on just two liters of oil and we were supposed to make it all the way to vancouver and we definitely wouldn't have and that would have been the end of my van my beloved van so i'm really glad that i checked it out (laughs) well yeah and now i'm i make damn sure that whoever's changing my oil is like or if i'm just doing it myself whatever i just make sure that (laughs) they put it in the right place (laughs) I'm glad for you. Two liters of oil and ugh, you just like the, the hair on my arms was standing up. So scary. The engine would just seize up right on the, in, in, I don't know, on Crow's Nest Pass or something. And I just, there would be a bad scene. <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's yeah. like a member of your band. That's like the fifth Beatle. Totally. G- generally speaking, I, I don't have any seats in. I just have the front two seats and the back just opens. So some other things I like to do with my van are like, uh, for a long time before I was doing this musical project, I was just playing in other people's bands all the time. So I would pull up to gigs in my van with all my stuff in it, but I always kept a mattress and sleeping bag and pillow in the back. And I still do just so I can crash anytime. So if I feel like partying, I can, and then I can just crash in there and it just solves so many problems for me. That's a good idea. And it makes for fun road trips too. Um, totally. Like the old station wagons where you could just kind of sit together and, and have a picnic back there, play board games in the van, whatever. Exactly. Well, let me tell you here, I, my, I'm my i curious what will happen when I get rid of this van, when I when it finally kicks the dust. I'm determined to take it to 500,000 kilometers because I just want to. I think that would be fun. But if it doesn't, or if it does, and then I need something new, I would first look to buy another Toyota Previa because I'm so in love with them. But... The other option is that my late grandfather had this has this mint condition 1998 Buick Roadmaster estate wagon, wood panels on the side, red velvet cushions, so badass. Who's the most famous person to ever be in your Toyota? Ooh, good question. It's possible that the answer is me. <laughs> I don't really know. You sound like a guy, and I'm I'm impressed. I'm liking you so much because you sound like a guy who can take care of a vehicle by himself. You know what's going on. You know the importance of proper maintenance. If there was someone who's just learning how to drive, just buying their first vehicle, what would you say as far as car maintenance? How do you take care of a car? What's a good tip? And I still know very little in the realm of automobiles. However, I've only owned kind of somewhat crappy old fans. So everything I've learned has I've just learned through things going wrong and then if you go, like, I would say probably your, my best advice would be to find a, find a good mechanic. Like, I have a, 
a guy that I take it to. He's all the way across town. It's kind of annoying, but he's a really good dude, and he loves the Previa as much as I do for some reason. I don't know. He just thinks it's a really cool van. Obviously, to understand how the entire thing works, pretty complicated, but to understand why you need an alternator. It's like, okay, I can understand that. What's the craziest or most memorable thing you've seen through your windows while you're out there on the road? In the last year, I've seen a bunch of cool wildlife. I, I saw a wolf, a big full-size wolf, right came right up to my van in, in Riding Mountain National Park. That was pretty cool, like, like a meter away from me. Yeah, those are some pretty crazy things. I also have seen some pretty disturbing accidents on the road, too. I think it was in Saskatoon on one of the many bridges in Saskatoon. This guy just lost control of his car and hit another car and it span out and he almost went off the bridge and the guy got out of his car and was so overwhelmed with emotion and fear that he just threw up over the side of the river. <laughs> and... <laughs> so we all stopped and made sure everything was, was uh, all cool. But yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty rough. Kind of, it does sort of, the, the older I get, the more I, the more I have a lot of respect for the road and the more I'm like, I'm, I just take it pretty seriously, especially if I have like a, you know, five of my best friends in the van with me. It's, it's a pretty big responsibility in a way. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I think I got off topic here. <laughs> oh, no, it's good. I'm glad you said that. You said best friends with you. And yeah. if you're on tour and you're playing and you're doing that sort of thing and you're in confined spaces, how can you make sure that you're still best friends at the end of the tour? It's a, it's a very good point. I think there's a few key things. You got to take a little bit of alone time for yourself whenever you can. Go on a walk by yourself, get yourself a coffee, that sort of thing. And also, we're all great at talking. We can, most of the time when we get in the van, it's like we just talk for like at least two hours straight. But then after that, no pressure. Put in your earpods or your AirPods or whatever and like listen to a podcast for a few hours. Just take it easy. Like, I don't know. I just don't never put any pressure on anyone to socialize if they don't want to. Just wanted to follow up here. Tell us about your tattoo. Oh, yeah. I just, I sent it to you because I was so excited at the time, but I, because I, okay, so I only just started getting tattoos, and, like, I'm definitely the kind of person that you would think would have tattoos, but I had a bit of a needle phobia, uh -huh. slash have a bit of a needle phobia. I recently got a, my first tat tattoo, it was a stick and poke, which seemed like, just go straight to the, like, most painful way to get a tattoo, kind of exposure therapy style. They gave me this awesome tattoo of uh, my Previa scooting down the road. I love it so much. And it's another stick and poke. That's awesome. I saw that and I, I mentioned to you that I instantly wanted to get one of my old Dodge. So I actually started designing my Dodge tattoo. You inspired me. Oh, amazing. Boy Golden and his minivan. He's cool. That album is awesome. So I, I, I have to say... I mentioned he has the best mustache out of Winnipeg since Burton Cummings, and I, I should be honest, he's also the best songwriter out of Winnipeg since Burton Cummings. His album, Church of Better Days, that's days with a Z and an E, is awesome. And he's a great guy, great artist. Check it out. Church of Better Days, anywhere you get your music. I'm Blake Jackson. Thanks for joining us for the Autobiography Podcast. Thanks also to uh, Jason Harris from the Reynolds Alberta Museum talking about the Brecklin. If you have a story, I want to hear it. We're on all the social medias, so check it out. Check us out anywhere. And until then, keep your wheels on the road and a tarp on your load. Mm -hmm.